First reading is from the Gospel according to St. John, uh, beginning verse 1 of chapter 11. It's on page 1077 of the Church Bibles, if anybody wants to follow it uh, on that. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one who you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of God. Good evening, everyone. Yes, I have. I don't know how I made that noise. That's quite impressive. Can't do that without a microphone. Good evening, everyone. Um, I will try not to buzz at you again, but if I do... Maybe that's just my buzzing personality coming out. Um, it is, I'm a sentence in, I've already gone completely, I may as well not even write this, to be honest. There's no point in coming here with notes. Good evening, everyone. I will stop buzzing at you, and I will start talking about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Segway. Um, this evening, we're continuing our series on the I am statements of Jesus. And this evening, we're looking at Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of the seven I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's accompanied by the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the last of the seven miracles recorded in John's Gospel and arguably one of the greatest. But alongside the death and resurrection of Lazarus, this forces us to come face to face with difficult questions around suffering and with death. A joyful topic for a lovely sunny summer evening. The question of why God allows suffering is a complex question that has troubled the greatest minds of the world for millennia. Uh, you have me and 20 minutes, so set your expectations. But we're going to look at three, I think, puzzle pieces that might help us to have a better understanding of who God is and where he is in the midst of suffering. So let's pray as we start. 
Lord God, I pray that you would be meeting with each one of us here. Would you help each one of us to come to know you more um, through me as I speak through us as we listen? Would you speak to each one of us and help each of us to hear what it is you have to say for us this evening? Amen. So the three points that we're going to look at this evening is God's control, God's context, and God's compassion. And so we're going to start with God's control, because one thing that this passage demonstrates very clearly to us is God's complete control over death. We see at the start of our passage that when Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick, he waits two days before he starts going to him. Why is that? There's a lot of theories as to why this may be, but I think one significant one is what happens when Jesus gets to Lazarus. When he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus is dead and he has been in the tomb for four days. This isn't the first time that Jesus has brought someone back from the dead. He resurrected Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. In Luke 7, he raised the widow's son from the dead. But in both those cases, the person had died really comparatively recently. Um, Jairus' daughter had only just died. When he comes to the widow's son, he arrives in the middle of the funeral, which happens almost immediately following death. So in both these cases, the body hasn't been dead for very long. Potentially, there could have been an accusation made that maybe these people weren't dead at all. Not sure why you'd have a funeral for someone you were only slightly sure was dead. Um, but nevertheless, this accusation could be made. But it can't be made here. Lazarus is dead and has been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus comes to the tomb, Martha tells him not to open it because there will be an odor. If you have any doubt that the King James Bible is not one of the most poetic um, pieces of literature we've ever had, King James Bible says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Genuinely true. So we have a four-day-old body here. If there's any more convincing proof that the grave here has claimed its victory, there is this. And yet it's in the context of this very definitively dead person that Jesus makes his claim to be the resurrection and the life. Many of Jesus' I am statements are paired with a corresponding miracle. When Jesus declares himself the bread of life, he pairs this with feeding 5,000. When Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world, he pairs this with bringing sight to a blind man. And here, when he claims to be the resurrection and the life, he pairs this with bringing Lazarus back to life. But in all these cases, the miracle that he performs, although related to the I am statement, is a signpost to what is truly happening. When Jesus says he is the bread of life, he doesn't literally mean that he is bread. And so when he brings physical bread, it's an indication of something more significant. Likewise, the light that he talks about is not just light that brings sight to the blind. And here, the life that Jesus talks about is not just usual physical life. When Jesus makes the claim to be the resurrection and the life, he provides some explanation for this. He says that the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And this suggests that belief in God is not enough to protect us from death in some form. Even Lazarus, who has been brought back to life, one day would have died again. But what Jesus is claiming here is not that we as Christians do not experience death 
but that for us, death is not the end. Even for those of us who have died, Jesus can bring us life. And he goes on to say in verse 26 that whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The life that Jesus promises us is more than the life that we currently have. It is life in the full. The American evangelist D.L. Moody once said this. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I should be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Through Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus and ultimately through his own death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus demonstrates his complete victory over death, what 1 Corinthians describes as the last enemy to be destroyed. And so the first thing I think we need to remember when we come to the question of suffering is that this is not a battle between equals. This is a battle that God has already completely and decisively won. For us as Christians, there is no fear from suffering. There is no fear from death. 1 Corinthians goes on to say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But if God has this full control over sin, over suffering and death, then why is there still suffering and death? And the second piece of the puzzle, I think, that comes in here is remembering God's context. Because God's perspective on things is extraordinarily different to ours. And perspective makes a very big difference. For instance, on Wednesday, I am planning to voluntarily go into a room where someone is going to stab me in the arm. I'm then gonna go home, and the best I can hope for the next day is that I'm gonna feel the same and it's possible I'll have some flu symptoms. If that was the full context, if that was all that we said, you would probably quite rightly say, that seems like not a very fun Wednesday, and probably not a very fun Thursday, and you would be right. But the point is that by getting this COVID vaccination, spoiler alert, um, if, yeah, you, you, <laughs> I'm hoping that was obvious, but um, by getting my COVID vaccine along with millions of other people, this gives me and those around me protection against the virus and allows us to head towards some semblance of normality. What we see is a short-term suffering for long-term gain. Likewise, recently, I have tried to start running a bit more. Um, I am not a natural runner. Um, I have legs, but that's about as much as qualifies me to do some running. Um, and I don't, I don't really enjoy it but I do it because I know that it makes me healthy. I don't feel healthy after it, I feel significantly less healthy than when I started. But it's again, short-term suffering for a long-term gain. In verse 37 of our passage, some of the people were asking Jesus, could this man not have prevented Lazarus's death? To which the answer is, of course he could. We see this throughout the gospels, Jesus healing people, 
Of course he could have prevented Lazarus's death. But here he chose not to. And again, the timing is significant. Had Jesus been there a little bit earlier, he may well have been able to prevent Lazarus's death. But a few days on, Lazarus would have been in exactly the same situation in both this hypothetical situation and the actual situation. After a few days, Lazarus was back to health. And what's the difference in impact? If Jesus had healed him, yes, that would have been a remarkable situation. But what we wouldn't have had is we wouldn't have had this story that has been recorded in the Bible and has inspired millions of Christians over centuries to understand God's convincing power over death. Consider the fact that in modern day parlance, Lazarus is used as shorthand essentially for resurrection. If something's referred to as the Lazarus something, it usually has some connotation of resurrection. I don't think we can get much more convincing a victory over death than that. And if we zoom out a little bit and think about things from God's perspective, every suffering, every pain that we feel is all temporary in exchange for the permanence of the eternal life that's offered to us. One day in the finite future, Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, he will bring about his new heavens and his new earth. And as the picture in Revelation 21 tells us, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Paul in 2 Corinthians describes our sufferings as light and momentary troubles which are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And note as well that this is God's context and this is not ours. In some situations we can look and we can see both the short-term pain and the long-term things that come from it but we won't always be able to see that. There will be suffering that happens in this life where we can't see the purpose or the benefit of it, and we won't understand it this side of the grave. But it's important that we recognize that we're thinking about God's perspective and not ours. And it is a claim of the most extraordinary arrogance to suggest that just because I can't think of a reason why God might have good reasons to do this, that therefore God can't have any possible, morally justifiable reasons for doing these. If we make that leap, we are making a most extraordinarily egotistical statement. In the book of Job, Job goes through immense suffering. And towards the end of the book of Job, he comes into contact with God himself. And this contact with God doesn't provide trite answers to the question of suffering. It doesn't provide pat justifications for why this has happened. But instead, God simply reminds Job of who he is. He reminds him that he's the God who created the world. He's the God that knows everything that's going on. And it's this encounter with God, rather than the conversations that Job has with his friends attempting to justify what's happening, that satisfies Job. He speaks of things that he did not understand, things too wonderful for him to know. In C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, he writes this. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In order to have some understanding of this problem of suffering, we don't necessarily need to have all the answers. We just need to be willing to put our trust 
in a God who does. And thirdly, this evening, I want to talk about God's compassion. Because God is not blind to the pain of suffering and of death. I don't know if you noticed in our passage, but when Martha and Mary come to Jesus, they both say exactly the same words. Verse 31, verse 32, sorry, and verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet his response to them is very different. To Martha, he gives a theological, intellectual response. He affirms himself as the resurrection and the life. He talks about the resurrection to come. This is clearly the answer that Martha is looking for. And this is where the questions of God's control and God's context can be helpful at an intellectual level when we want to understand why God acts in the way that he does. But there's obviously another component to the question of suffering, and that is the emotional one. How do we react when we're in the midst of suffering? And this is what he sees in Mary. When Mary comes to him and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He doesn't give her the same response. Instead, he sees her weeping, and he sees the weeping of those around her, and he himself is deeply moved. We know from verses three and five of our passage that Jesus was close to Mary and Martha and close to Lazarus. These were people who he knew and who he loved. And so seeing Lazarus dead, seeing Mary and Martha in pain, causes him pain as well. And so we come then to verse 35, one of the shortest verses in the Bible where it says that Jesus wept. And the weeping here is significant. At the time in Jewish funerals, you would have professional mourners who would come to the funeral and would put on a display of mourning. They would be hired essentially from funeral to funeral. I'm assuming there was a purpose, it wasn't just some sort of vicious mockery. But they would come here and they would mourn in some sort of professional way. Uh, one seven I was listening to kept referring to them as professional wailers, which just made me think of them sort of standing around a tomb with harpoons, which I don't think is what they meant. I, 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 they may have had harpoons, I didn't look into that. But Jesus isn't mourning in the way that they are mourning in a professional way. He is, in a very, very literal sense, and I apologize for this, a mourning person. That's right. Jesus is openly weeping. He is openly emotional in this situation. And it's interesting that in the context here, he's just a few minutes away from bringing Lazarus back from the dead. He knows that what they're going through is temporary, that very, very soon, Lazarus will be back to life, that their mourning will turn to joy. And yet still, even in the midst of that, he is empathizing and sympathizing deeply with them. And this is how God reacts to us as well. When he sees us going through suffering, he isn't just distant and saying, oh, that's all very well and good, it'll be sorted out eventually. He is here with us. God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, the Psalms remind us. God is a God of compassion and a God of comfort. And in verse 38, when Jesus comes to the tomb, he's once more deeply moved. And the term here is one that's actually quite difficult to translate. The original Greek is usually used in the context of the snort of anger that comes out from a horse, which I'm not going to attempt to do. But there's an element of anger here when Jesus sees the tomb. Some commentators have suggested that this might be 
because of the doubt that some of the Jews had that he could resurrect people from the dead. But I don't think that's right. I think that instead what we're seeing here is Jesus having, again, a deep emotional reaction to the presence of sin, suffering, and death in the world. John 1 tells us that Jesus created the world. All things were created through him. Without him, not one thing was made that has been made. He made the world and he made it good. And yet suffering and death has infected it. And so when he sees the suffering and the death infecting the world and people that he cares about, he is angry at it. And he fights it here by bringing Lazarus back from the death. And ultimately he fights it in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so we need to remember as well that God is compassionate. If we just consider the context and the control, we have a picture of a God who is powerful but distant. But if we mix in the compassion of a God who comes to live with us and die for us, we recognize God's presence in the midst of our suffering as well. And so, although we may not have a full understanding of why suffering has to occur, I think this passage does reassure us of three things. It reassures, reassures us that God is in full control over death and that as Christians we don't have anything to fear from it. That God's context is greater than ours. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we can trust our God who sees more than we do. And further, that God has compassion when we suffer, that he's not distant, he's not uncaring, but that he knows us, he loves us, and when we are struggling, he wants to come alongside us and cares for us. And ultimately, as we said, there will come a point where our suffering comes to an end. As intense as it may be, it is temporary. And at that point when suffering comes to an end, Jesus, as the resurrection and the life, comes to us and will make us new. I think there's a few things that God might be wanting to say to us this evening. Um, so would you stand with me and we'll take a few minutes to pray. Lord God, we thank you first of all for your control over this world. We thank you that there is nothing that goes on that is outside of your control, that you see everything and that you know everything. And we pray now for situations where we may feel out of control. We name before God any places or any situations where we don't quite see where God is working. As we do that, Lord, would you reassure us of your presence with us, of your guiding presence on us, and of your control over all that is happening in us and through us. Lord, we thank you as well that you see all things, that you see much more than we do. We pray now for any situations where we don't understand and we pray that you would grant us knowledge and wisdom in the situations where there are things you want us to know. Would you help us in our struggles to know you more deeply and to love you more for it? But also in those situations where we may not be able to see what, what is going on, 
We pray that you would grant us peace with that, that you would grant us your grace, and you would help us to have faith and confidence in you who is in control. Father, we also pray for your comfort, particularly on those of us who are suffering, be it physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We pray that you would bring your spirit of comfort and peace on us, that we would know your presence in the midst of suffering as we journey through the valley of the shadow of death. Would you help us, Lord, to take your yoke upon us and to learn from you to find rest for our souls. And for those who are known to us as well, who are suffering at this point, would you bring them that same spirit of comfort and peace? And would you use us as your body, as your hands and your feet, to bring your comfort and your peace to them where you want to use us? Would you help us to be people who bring peace and reconciliation to those around us and to a hurting world? And finally, let's just give God a minute to speak to us. thank you. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We thank you for those of us here who are Christians, who have been invited already into that resurrection and that life. And we pray that you would help us to live out our lives in the light of the life that you have given us. And for those of us here who haven't yet taken that step, that step of putting our faith in you, Would you help us to draw closer to you? Would you draw nearer to us as we do that? And help us to be ready to recognize you as the resurrection and the life. We lift these prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen.